I'm Shannon Paradis, your host and founder of Learn, Laugh, Leap. I'll be bringing you content about self-discovery, how people find their purpose, live joyfully, and make an explosive impact on those around them. The podcast at its core is centered around health and wellness, but I want to start by learning from people that light up my life personally, laugh a lot, and then I want to have conversations with people that change the way we dream and empower us to leap forward. I'm so excited to take you on this journey with me. Let's leap in. Today, I get to talk to my husband's cousin, Lily Riveron. She's basically like my cousin, so I'm going to take her in as my own. I really adore her and put her on a pedestal because she shines inside and out. She has so many fascinating things going on in her life, but she stays incredibly humble and she's still able to laugh at herself, which I love too. Lily is an incredibly talented young woman that was a ballerina who went to the Royal Ballet School in London, danced for the Boston Ballet, graduated from Harvard co-wrote a book and currently holds a corporate job at a highly revered company in California while still expressing her love for dance through choreography. Try saying that three times fast. <laughs> it seems like she's lived 10 lives. Just want to welcome Lily. Hello. Hey, <laughs> so good to have you on. So thanks for doing this. Thank you. And that was way too nice <sighs> of an intro, but thanks. All true. All true. <laughs> So can you share your story and your background with us? How did you become a dancer? Yeah, that is a good question. It befuddles me as well (laughs) (laughs) because I grew up in a really small town in Wisconsin that had very few opportunities with ballet, I think. But my sister, my older sister was doing it and I kind of just followed her and did whatever she did. So from four to five, I was doing ballet and then I hated it. Hated it, hated it. So, (laughs) yeah. Did it for a whole year and you hated it that whole time? I know. It's shocking. The resilience I had for one whole year at four. (laughs) (laughs) So I I stopped because my mom was not going to like pressure me to do something I didn't want to do. But then a year later, I remember being in a hardware store with her and randomly saying, Mom, you know, I think I want to try ballet again. And she was like, okay, but if you cry before every class when I take you, (laughs) we're quitting for good. (laughs) When you went back the second time around, what shifted? Yeah, I think it was still probably like another four years of me not liking it that much, but being stubborn and saying I wanted to go back. So, (laughs) and then at 10, I think that's where the turning point was when I started getting some pretty positive feedback from teachers and going to summer schools in Milwaukee and realizing, hey, this is actually something that can be pretty thrilling and that a number of teachers were seeing some kind of potential in me and said, if you wanted to pursue this, you definitely could try for it, but it would take you getting out of Wisconsin. So I had to make the decision, do I want this badly enough to leave home and go to what I chose was Florida. Eventually at 13, I was like, okay, I'm going to take the leap of faith and try this because I didn't want to live with the regret of what if. Mm-hmm. So I, I went to the Herod Conservatory in Boca Raton and was miserable again. Oh <laughs> so far, this is a really positive story. <laughs> what was it about dance that... You were having such a negative experience with it. Yeah, you know, I think actually at that point, dancing itself was the positive experience. The hard part for me was moving away from my family. I was the youngest of three. I was so dependent. So 
every day I would cry and just feel like, you know, I'm missing out on my childhood. I've sacrificed so much and I was too serious as a 13 year old. <laughs> so that was the hard part. But the thing that kept me going was the intoxicating effect of performing. And that really was the dream come true. So at 16, I auditioned for my dream school in London and against all odds, it felt like I was one of two that got in. It was me and this one girl from the Vaganova school in Russia, which is oh, like... Oh my god. <laughs> Holy that just sounds intense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they choose these girls at like the age of three based oh. on their body types and like what? ship them off away from their fans. So I don't know how that happened, but I moved to London and spent the next three years there at the Royal Ballet School. Oh my gosh. So what was that experience like? It was quite literally a dream come true. I mean, every single day for three years, I woke up and felt giddy that I was where I had hoped to be since I was first interested in maybe looking at this for a career. So this for me is where the interview got really interesting because Lily is discussing things that you really don't see when you do your own research online. Everyone paints this beautiful picture of ballet and the artistry behind the performance, but nobody really talks about the behind the scenes part. And so Lily gives us some really interesting insight about it. She said that at the Royal ballet school she danced from 8 a.m to 6 p.m at the school and then danced from 7 30 to 10 30 p.m for the company then you ice your feet sleep and do it all again the next day you're part of 10 performances with the company and maybe six for the school uh, throughout the year but then when she danced for the boston ballet she did 43 shows within five weeks so she's dancing for the whole month of december and the first week of january it is insane how much dedication that these dancers have. And I would challenge you to send me any information that you have beyond this that would give more insights into being a dancer that are the crazy, the dangerous parts of dancing. I just wonder, I mean, you're obviously training your body to and conditioning it to perform, but to have that many performances crammed into five weeks, you just wonder how you stay injury free. Yeah, no one does, to be perfectly honest. Everybody's injured. They have doctors on call and the physical therapists are, um, that are always there and completely booked at all times. So when you're not dancing, you're icing or doing therapy with like these crazy electronics hooked up to you where you're getting like shocks and um, ultrasound and you name it, all of it. So it's constantly trying to do damage control when you're not dancing, unfortunately. So how do you keep that face on during your performance, even if you're going through pain? Yeah, I think the way that you feel on stage makes it worth it. I, I just can't even explain it. It feels like everything falls away and you can be nervous beforehand, but once you get on stage, even the audience ceases to exist in your mind and you're, you're suddenly, hmm. it's just you and the music. And it sounds cheesy, but it does feel like the music is almost coming from within you. Um, you're so wrapped mm. up in trying to embody it. And if you're with a group, it's fantastic because you have to lose yourself in that. You become so in sync, in sync with the other dancers and try to tune up your peripheral vision and your senses so that you almost forget what your main, your personal strengths are and instead focus on, okay, how do I optimize the group's presence on stage? Which is a, right. a pretty crazy feeling. And I think it mirrors, I love philosophy, so this is just always where my my mind goes, <laughs> but it mirrors you know, any kind of relationship 
that we have in life. And you have to kind of extend your own senses and step outside of yourself and consider the people or the person that you're in that relationship with as if you are one. And that's what dancing in a group felt like. Wow. Was there ever a point where you were doing a solo dance or was it always in a group? I was lucky and I got to do quite a few solos and I, I did love that for such different reasons. It's kind of crazy the the feeling of solitude that you feel even though there are maybe 3,000 eyeballs or 6,000 <laughs> total. Wait, where is the audience that large? Well, the Royal Opera House holds 3,500 I think. Holy smokes. I always found it much harder to perform in front of a small group where you can see people's expressions because then you can't really lose yourself. You are hungry for their feedback and you feel yourself reading it and that can affect the next few seconds of your performance. Whereas mm-hmm. when you can't see them, it doesn't matter. Like there's really nothing that they could do to you to, you know, express disappointment in that moment and all you can do is just give yourself over to that moment. Have you ever had an audience that was that sounded like they were disappointed? Not as it was happening. But I mean, you'll always have those reviews and reviews will come out and they'll be super hypercritical. No way. Yeah. I mean, it's just hard. It's a super hard profession in that your job every single day is to go in and criticize yourself. And then everyone who is a supervisor of yours, so the whole artistic staff, their job is also to criticize you (laughs) so that you can improve. And you're wearing nothing pretty much. You're, you know, in front of mirrors eight hours a day and surrounded by people who are also wearing nothing and are also perfectionists. And it's impossible not to compare yourself to them and just allow it to kind of chip away at your self-esteem. So how did you maintain your self-esteem? I think I was incredibly lucky to have a very strong support system. My family made it very clear to me that my value in their eyes never ever came from anything that I could accomplish or would accomplish. My mom was so the opposite of a stage mom, which is kind of surprising. <laughs> she, I remember, you know, I would have like a little bit of a backache one day and I'd be like, yeah, today was pretty good, but my back kind of hurts. And she'd be like, oh, you're quitting. <laughs> Your body's more important than this. Did you feel like the turnover within your group was high? I think there are a couple of waves. Once you make it to that first job as a professional and you're in the corps de ballet of a ballet company, that is such a big transition where it's like, okay, now is the real test. Can your body handle this? And a lot of people will drop out at that point. But if you make it to that, then afterwards, it might be another 10 to 15 years. And then it kind of just gets down to like wear and tear. So how many years did you dance total? So from four to five and then (laughs) six. Yeah, that is on. And then six to twenty-one. And I've I've been dancing since I left the professional ballet world, but yeah. until twenty-one professionally. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like ballet chose you, or did you choose ballet? Like of all the art or dance forms that there were, why ballet? Wow, I, I love that question. What I love about ballet, because I've explored countless other types of dance, and I love that ballet is at the foundation of it all. Essentially, to do it well, you have to understand anatomy and physics in my mind and that's something that I love the intellectual side of it Mm -hmm. my dad always used to joke that I approached my art like a scientist (laughs) because I would sit there and I would pick apart okay what is the most efficient way for my body to achieve this the optimal result Mm -hmm. and yeah it should look aesthetically pleasing in the end but really I'm also like just thinking about the physics of it like okay in in a pirouette how to be like a top. 
so that you're wide on top and are expansive through your shoulders and your back. So you're really thinking about like broadening those muscles, your intercostal muscles in your ribs and and then trying to make everything else compact. So your like lower abs and, and everything else is the base of that top so that when you spin, the weight is in the right place. Jeez. I knew there was so much going into that. So did you actually have to take anatomy and physics classes to understand those types of things? Most people don't. I am such a nerd that I did. (laughs) Um, Go Lily. Well, no, I don't know. I think I just loved uh, thinking about the mechanics of movement. And I I do think that really helped a lot. And then Pilates was probably the number one thing that helped as like a cross-training strategy. Interesting. When you're in the ballet school, Mm -hmm. they offered those types of classes, different fitness classes for you to take? They did, yes. It was different for the guys and and girls in my class. So the guys will have upper body training so that they can lift girls above their heads. And the girls would have point classes and then more Pilates classes. The guys had Pilates as well. But then you'll have those pas de deux classes or dance for two. So you're partnering ones where you're learning how to turn and jump and um, be lifted and thrown around. Oh my gosh. Lily is the salt of the earth kind of girl. She wants to apply what she has learned to help other dancers not just survive, but thrive in this process. So many people unfortunately walk away from an opportunity or experience that is so unique, but they don't take the time to give back in any way. They simply talk about it and they move on. Not Lily. She really wants to shake up the ballet space for the better. I was set on going into arts management all through school. I wanted to go into the business side of ballet companies companies and hopefully bridge the gap because there are very few ex-professional dancers that go into the executive or administrative or managerial side of things. Mm-hmm. There's often a, a huge disconnect where, you know, the executive staff, we recently saw this at Boston Ballet, the executive staff will have one goal, which is going to be typically like streamlining the financial side of things. And then the artistic staff will have a different goal. Um, that's, you know, more in keeping with the dancers and what they need rather than maybe the business and what it needs to thrive. And that tension can often lead to conflict, but especially I think for the dancers, it can lead to a lot of unhealthy decisions being made. Mm -hmm. So my dream was to try to bridge that gap and provide a perspective of like, hey, these are the things that are important to dancers. Now, how can we go about this in a fiscally responsible way and make sure that like they're getting having a lifestyle that allows them to thrive, but also allows the business to thrive. So what would some of those ideas look like? Yeah, that's a great question. One case study of a company that I recently read about, they realized that they were like a lot of arts organizations <laughs> running a, a huge deficit. So they decided to cut quite a few things that affected dancers in such a negative way. One of them was that there wouldn't be a hierarchical salary structure for corps de ballet members, meaning a lot of dancers, you know, everyone's dream is to become a principal, but a lot of dancers won't make it. I mean, it's so competitive and that's such a teeny tiny tip of the pyramid. So if you're a, a corps de ballet dancer your whole life, how do you make it livable? when you know you're 10 years in and you're still making like $30,000 and you oh might gosh. be in New York City. So do a lot of the dancers have another job 
or is that really their full-time job? That's really their full-time job. Wow. There are a lot of people who do like modeling gigs or guest dancing over the summer or during breaks, but it's just impossible to coordinate schedules with another job. Wow. So you would try to implement some of those changes where there's goals for the dancers and it would also provide some kind of financial support or bump in pay. Yeah, exactly. My main concern would be how to protect the dancers. Other other things that might be cut would be every dancer needs a sprung floor so that when you jump, it prevents you getting from getting injured because it's like when track runners run on a track, they have that like spring. It's that mm-hmm. special face. Similarly for dancers, that's what you need, but it needs to be replaced every decade or less. And that's really expensive. So for a company, that's a huge investment, but then there are more injuries. Is that more cost effective in the end? If more dancers are injured, then you have people that are there and not being used and you can't cast them in things. I think it's just balancing how do we protect the interests of our dancers first and foremost, because then they can get out there and do what they do best. And we can bring in revenue from these shows and have healthy dancers mentally and physically. That would be my goal. Let's talk about that. Having healthy dancers mentally and physically. And you mentioned that sometimes dancers make unhealthy choices. So what does that look like? And how has that kind of influenced you in the long run? I saw it all when I was I'm sure <laughs> dancing. I knew people who went on the cotton ball diet, which essentially mm-hmm. is you eat cotton balls and then you oh drink water, preferably sparkling water. And Ugh. the cotton balls expand in your stomach so that you feel full. Oh, it's got to be so bad for your digestive system. Can you imagine? But the crazy thing is dancers get so used to sacrificing short-term happiness or pleasure for long-term goals that hunger is just like, okay, I'm going to put these point shoes on even though I have blisters and a stress reaction in my metatarsal, but I have to, like, the show must go on. Same with hunger. It's like, okay. In fact, there's almost like a masochistic feeling like, yes, this is good for me in the long run. So you mess up the associations that you have in your brain with hunger and fullness, where hunger becomes a positive association, you know, Pavlov's conditioning. Okay, now I'm going to be happy when I'm hungry and I feel disgusted with myself when I'm full because that means that I'm not doing the right thing for my career. In the school, do they offer nutrition and health classes? They did, yes. The tricky thing is that they were often so rudimentary and old school. And I think it never gave dancers the benefit of the doubt. So you do have to be pretty smart to be a good dancer, I think. And it was almost as if the nutrition classes were dumbed down to the kinds of things that everyone knows, like don't eat sugar. And and they would say things like eat low fat. And that's not at all what you should be doing as a dancer, right. um, like eating fat free and taking in your calories from just carbs and no protein. They really didn't give you the building blocks of hey, this is the science of how food works in your body. And now equipped with that knowledge, you can make like healthy and wise decisions for the rest of your life. You don't have to follow a list of do's and don'ts. I googled ballerina just to see what would come up as like some of the questions that are asked around ballet and ballerinas. And Mm -hmm. it said, what what is the weight that you have to be in order to become a ballerina? And it said 85 to 130 pounds and preferably between five foot three and five foot eight. And I just thought, first of all, 85 pounds, that sounds like a a 10 year old girl, maybe. Yeah. I mean, did you know people were that were that low in weight? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. My my closest friend um, had to leave ballet the same year that I did because after a lifetime of being malnourished, her bones were so brittle by the age of 20 that they were that of an 80-year-old osteoporotic woman. Oh my gosh. 
when she went to get her first like scans of her bones and found out about all of this, they looked porous. It was like a pumice stone. <gasps> yeah. I would imagine like you just trying to walk down the street, you probably just get fatigued and want to lay down, you know? Yeah. But at the That's same crazy. time, I mean, the crazy thing about anorexia is that you have a nervous agitated energy. So instead of feeling lethargic, you end up having enough energy to get you through the day, which is a crazy, you know, adaptive mechanism that our bodies developed. How did you hopefully avoid some of the things that you were seeing around you and make it so that you could still be a beautiful ballerina and do the physical activity that's required of you while maintaining a healthy weight and and what they are looking for as as their ideal. I was unbelievably lucky. This is not of my own merit in any way. I was born into a family where my mom, uh, she ran an eating disorders clinic and is a psychiatrist. I learned the fundamentals of how to eat and live healthily and also how to keep my mind healthy. It was not foolproof. I still broke down a lot from the uh, negative atmosphere I was in, but that was definitely what I attribute. My ability to kind of stay away from the, the major threat of these eating disorders. That's a really nice transition because, as you know, diet and exercise are a huge element of the podcast. And you co-wrote a book with your mom called Healthy and Lean, The Science of Metabolism and the Psychology of Weight Management. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it relates to dance? Definitely. The book is, it's an interesting story because I kind of fell into that. My mom was writing this book that felt like a compilation of what she learned and experienced as a psychiatrist and running her eating disorders clinic. And as I mentioned, I'm such a nerd. I was at the Royal Ballet School. and It's cool to be a nerd, just so you know. <laughs> I agree. Maybe we're kind of biased since we are nerds. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever. So I was at the Royal Ballet School, wanted an academic outlet of some kind. And luckily, my mom was writing a book and she hates writing. But I love writing. She hates <laughs> writing. And she was she must have thought that the idea was that important that she didn't care that she hated to write. Exactly. Yeah, she definitely felt compelled to write something that was very different than the millions of diet and exercise books that are out there. So she did feel like there was something drawing her or calling her to this. But she always dreaded the writing portion of it. She loved the technical scientific side. So she provided that knowledge. And then I had fun providing the voice and infusing the book with random little quips and stories or allusions to Harry Potter or Mean Girls or Legally Blonde. <laughs> and here's a great example of that. A little excerpt from Healthy and Lean, the book that Lily wrote with her mom, Heidi. This is Heidi talking. My daughter, a self-proclaimed Harry Potter geek, pointed out to me that dieting is like the maze in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And while I've never read the books myself, I think she's right. She told me that just before the contestants of the Triwizard Tournament go into their final challenge, Dumbledore warns them, people change in the maze. Oh, find the cup if you can, but be very wary. You could just lose yourselves along the way. Once in the maze, the contestants find themselves thinking and acting in a way they never would have before the competition. It brought out hideous things in them. Restrictive eaters can reach a tipping point that launches them into their very own Triwizard Tournament maze, and suddenly they're pushed over the precipice into the void of uncharacteristic thoughts and actions. That is how normal people can end up with a serious disease like anorexia nervosa or bulimia. So what what's the true kind of concept behind the book? So the general idea is that 
there are, like I mentioned, a million diet and exercise books that tell us tips to live. But it's really hard to find the science of how food works in the body and what kind of exercising and how much exercise is good for the body and, and also the mental fortitude and the different cognitive strategies you can have to promote healthy behavior alongside the physical strategies. All of that, but put into a super conversational tone. So, you know, either there'll be textbooks that explain this in a scientific way for med students, and those aren't fun to read, so no one is going to want to read those. Yeah, right. Or there'll be the ones that are super dumbed down and don't give people the chance to say, hey, this is actually why these tips make sense, why this advice makes sense. For instance, why is protein important for you? And in what proportion, in what ratio? And then giving the studies and the facts behind that so you know, like, I can make this decision for myself. I will listen to my body, listen to the science of this, and make my own decisions based on my And it's, it's really heavy on the rules of the glycemic index. So can you talk a little bit about that? What is it? And then how does it apply to your diet today? The glycemic index is probably one of the the things that I use as a guideline for my own eating habits the most. Essentially, it describes how fats, carbohydrates, and proteins break down into usable energy in our bodies. So carbohydrates are the ones that can be looked at with through the glycemic index because they are broken down into glucose. So glycemic glucose, that's where that comes from. And essentially, that means sugar, right, in the body um, and in the bloodstream. So the types of carbohydrates that allow you to maintain a healthy and lean body physique mm-hmm. <laughs> are the ones that are lower on the glycemic index, meaning they don't cause your body to have this sharp intake in blood sugar and then secrete insulin to bring your blood sugar back down and store that glucose that you've just taken out of the bloodstream as fat molecules. When you're following it really strictly, mm-hmm. well, what is your energy level like? That's such a great question because it's something that I think is one of the best outcomes of following a glycemic index type diet in that if you are trying to keep your blood sugar stable, your energy level will be stable as well as your hunger. The thing that gets us in trouble a lot will be if we take in something that causes our blood sugar to spike, let's say a bunch of mashed potatoes that has a high glycemic index because it's easily broken down in the body. So it causes your blood sugar to spike turns into glucose easily, then you're going to have that rush of energy at first. But then when insulin is secreted and all that glucose is taken out of the bloodstream, you're going to have a dip in energy. And when you hit that dip, not only will you feel more tired, you'll also get hungry again faster, which causes you to eat more. So already you can kind of see that, wait, it doesn't matter how many calories were in that original thing of mashed potatoes if it's going to be causing you to need more calories very soon. That's kind of what we should be focusing more on. Whereas you could take in the same amount of calories from protein, from eggs, let's say, and it won't cause you to be hungry in just a little bit because it doesn't have this up and down of blood sugar. And then it'll sustain you longer. You won't need to take in as many calories later in the day. So if you're being your best self, you know, using the glycemic index as the rule, what does a typical day look like for you and your diet? I try very hard to always have a great start to my day with protein and healthy fat as the the bulk to get my metabolism fired up for the day. And definitely always some kind of high fiber, low glycemic index carbohydrate. That balance is so important. So every time I eat, which is pretty often because I have like six small meals a day, (laughs) I'll always try to have that balance of 
a great ratio of protein to healthy fat and a smaller portion of some kind of high fiber, low glycemic index carb. And you're setting a good example for people because just because you're eating more frequently doesn't mean that you're going to gain weight. It's all about what you eat and feeling your body and what it needs. So you're actually like asking it from within, what is it that my body needs for fuel? Totally. And you actually mentioned that. Can you share that Porsche analogy? That was great. Oh, yes. My mom actually came up with this and the idea that, you know, if you have this beautiful car, let's say it's a Porsche or a Bentley, you're not going to put in low grade fuel when you go to the gas station because you know that it won't run optimally. But for some reason, we don't treat our bodies with that same kind of reverence in that we're okay putting low grade fuel into our bodies through things that have a lot of preservatives or packaged foods or super processed sugary high glycemic index carbohydrates like animal crackers or something. And that's not allowing our bodies to perform optimally like that Porsche Mm -hmm. that needs that really high quality fuel. And it's silly because at the end of the day, our bodies are worth infinitely more than any car. So And we only have one. Were you eating like this when you were in the ballet? I was, yeah. I remember people looking at me almost with kind of like anger and disgust disgust because I was eating probably like three times as much as them sometimes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they would maybe go on these crazy diets like they would live off of coffee and Kit Kat, like two Kit Kats a day, and then get home and be starving because they built up this huge calorie deficit. And then they would find themselves eating way too much and then feel such shame and guilt. And either they would try to binge through further exercise, like jumping on an elliptical at night or throwing up, you name it, or just feel super guilty about it um, and try to starve themselves and fully live a more restricted lifestyle moving forward. So it was a terrible cycle, but then they saw me eating a lot and often And it was kind of like, huh, well, she just must have some weird body that manages this. And it's like, no, no, you can do it too. (laughs) What are some of the other things that you do to stay physically and mentally fit? And I know that you mentioned Pilates, which I love. Do you still do that? I do. Yeah, I I love Pilates. Um, I do yoga. Honestly, I am such a fan of any kind of activity that allows you to be physically active, but not in a way that's super punitive and breaking your back. And it's granted very hard with, you know, our desk jobs where we might be sitting at a computer for eight hours a day and then you feel like, oh, I want to get moving. You maybe have one hour where you're at a spin class and you get all of your energy out in that one hour, but that's not actually the way to keep your metabolism consistently fired, to keep your body constantly burning energy and having a high level of energy. That creates this calorie deficit in one short hour where suddenly you're like, oh my gosh, I now need to fill this and it can be counterproductive to weight management. So for me, I love biking outside, going for really long walks, Pilates, yoga, swimming, dancing, obviously. Anything that kind of keeps you moving, keeps you agile and mobile, but without making you feel like I can't move the rest of the day. What do you do for yourself mentally? The second half of the book that my mom and I wrote is about the mental health that is so vital to achieving. So one of the strategies for setting yourself up for success mentally is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's really just the idea that we can practice self-reflection and create an internal dialogue for ourselves that sets us up with a healthy self-esteem that, you know, on the one hand, isn't blind to our own flaws, but it also doesn't hyper-focus on them. That, you know, entails one looking those monsters in your closet in the face, whatever wounds or struggles you've had that could inhibit you from being your most productive and happy and healthy self. 
Um, so first okay. facing those and then confronting those issues and then taking a number of constructive steps towards vanquishing those monsters, I guess. And then nurturing the components of ourselves that lead to wholeness. At the mm-hmm. end of the day, everyone probably has different things that work for them, whether it's prayer or meditation or even being with friends, making sure you have that time where you can be with people who lift you up. But I think the main thing is everyone needs to take the initiative to set aside time and put in the work to build those strong coping mechanisms. I'm so proud of you and everything that you've achieved and and you really set a great example for people that the world can really be your oyster. You know, you've done just some crazy things and you have so much talent and I think the biggest thing is, you know, you've mentioned just putting in hours and hours. There's a lot of work and discipline that goes into that. So you've demonstrated that you can have some wonderful things in your life, but it requires you to put in the work to get there. I completely agree. And I think that's something that I learned in dance, but that has carried me through school afterwards. Even if you are living a dream, like I said, I was in England. Mm -hmm. It is a day-to-day practice of discipline and even getting through the tedious, less glamorous aspects of any job and finding joy in that process as well. Anything else that's exciting that you can tell us about? Yeah. In, at the end of July, I'll be performing in Miami a piece that I choreographed. Um, and it, the performance is for LinkedIn's global sales kickoff. So it's just going to be all of the sales professionals, I think, actually just within North America. What? So how many salespeople is it? I was told 5,000. <laughs> <laughs> I will be performing in a an employee talent showcase. So there are eight acts oh total. And I, I know that there is a stand-up comedian who actually does stand-up comedy like professionally on the side. Wow. <laughs> and there's going to be a tap dancer working with a beatboxer and like oh. all sorts of different things. So I'm really excited for that. For sure. And talk to me about some of the other dances that you're learning. I have had such a fun time in San Francisco dabbling in and exploring flamenco and um, hip-hop and bachata, which is kind of like salsa. And I'm going to start Argentinian tango and West Coast swing. So it's been a blast. 